Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday Dhamma session. Today I'll be talking about karma. Spend some time going over this topic and then the rest of the time will be spent ask, answering questions that have been asked in the chat. Joining me today are Chris, Ulu, and Jim. Chris is here as, as per normal, answering questions, and Jim and Ulu are in the background organizing them. For the first part, you're welcome to post questions in advance. It helps us to organize in advance. Questions should ideally be centered around meditation practice. You're welcome to make mindful conversation in chat. And of course, you're encouraged to close your eyes and cultivate mindfulness as a part of the listening process. There's no video for these sessions specifically because our hope is that this is a mindful session where we don't focus externally, but we focus internally. Try and be aware of what's going on inside, not what's going on outside. Well, karma is, a, of course, a hot topic in Buddhism. It's something that you could talk about for hours, great length, and never cover all the intricacies of it. Buddha said it's not possible to understand the intricacies of karma unless you're maybe a Buddha who can understand such profound complex topics. First thing to understand about karma from a Buddhist perspective is that it's not really karma. And this is important because we often misunderstand what the Buddha meant when he used the word karma. See, at the time of the Buddha, there was a prevalent belief in action. Belief in the potency of certain action. The word karma, of course, means simply action. It's a word that is used and was used in ordinary discourse to describe work or just any action that a person performed, but it came to take on a religious meaning when referring to ritual action. And people, many, many, there were groups of people who were very intent upon ritual action in the time of the Buddha. We see in the ancient non-Buddhist texts that karma or action, ritual action was of extreme importance. Sometimes in order to appease deities or to bring about positive results for the individual. Sometimes just as a matter of course, because it was a religious duty, which might seem foreign to certain people, but if you're involved in organized religion or have been, you, you might identify with this where you see the importance placed on certain ritual activities. And of course, we see this even in, in organized Buddhism in different cultures where it's important that you do things this way and don't do things that way. Don't point your feet at the Buddha. It's a very big one in Thailand, but in Sri Lanka, everyone points their feet at the Buddha. Uh, bow this way, and in this country they bow this way, in that country they bow another way. I was once corrected in how I was bowing to the Buddha, rightly so, because I thought I was doing it properly, but still, there, there's no right way to bow to the Buddha. 
This is all ritual. And this was alive and, and given great importance in the time of the Buddha. And so when the Buddha tried to explain his teachings and correct some of the misunderstandings and, and help people to overcome their, their superstitious nature, an understanding of true karma was important or, or the aspect of our behavior that was truly potent. And so the Buddha said that jetana was karma. He said, jetana hang bhikkave kamang vadhami. He said, if you, want, if you want the truth, if you look deeply at the, the truth of reality, you'll see that the actions themselves are not efficacious, they're not potent. It's our inclination, our state of mind, our jitana, that is truly potent. So when we talk about karma in Buddhism, we're not actually talking about the act. The Buddha didn't believe in karma. He didn't believe in action as being efficacious. He, he, he denied the potency of action. And he used the word in a different way to describe the thing that is efficacious, the real action that has consequences. When you kill, when you steal, when you lie, when you cheat, that which has true potency. Also, when you give, when you're kind, when you meditate, the walking back and forth and the sitting still are not what is efficacious. It's the state of mind, the quality of mind quality of mind when you kill, steal, give, speak kind words, speak harsh words. It's not the vibrations coming out of your voice box. It's the intentions behind them. It's the mental inclination. It's the state of mind. Because that state of mind is habit-forming. It's habit-forming, and it is incriminating. Incriminating in that it makes you feel guilty afterwards. Or it, it leads you to wrong view, to believe that bad things are right. When you get angry and you act out of anger, through ego, through through conceit, you can give rise to the view that you're justified in being angry, and because I was angry, anger must be the right thing, because I'm a person who knows what is the right thing. We become conceited about our actions, right? It's right because I did it, therefore I should keep doing it. Very self-fulfilling in that sense. And it gets worse and worse. And leads us, of course, to do and say more unwholesome things. What is it that leads you to perform unwholesomeness? It's the state of mind. What we call unwholesome, like killing and stealing. If you don't have the intention behind it, suppose you step on an ant by mistake, then there's no inclination to kill. You haven't created any inclination to kill. You were never inclined to kill. It happened by accident. But when you intentionally do it, you cultivate the intention. You meant to do it. And that's it. The, that's the karma, the intention, the state of mind, the quality of mind, whether it's wholesome quality of mind or unwholesome quality of mind. Those are the two types of potent states of mind. And then it's over. It's done. Karma isn't something you accumulate. We talk about karma often quite inaccurately, which isn't always a problem, but it is useful to be accurate and precise. Karma is something that is done and gone. 
you don't carry it with you and you say this person has very bad karma the way to rightly say that is that this person has done very bad karma or very good karma when we say a person has very good karma we have to be clear that what we mean is in the past they have done they have had and given rise to and made use of very wholesome or unwholesome states of mind cultivated them and, and put them into action and so there's nothing carried with us the point is that they have changed us the point of, of all of this is that wholesome and unwholesome states of mind change who you are and they change your circumstance they change your circumstance in this life when people rightly denounce you for bad karma or rightly praise you for good karma. And they determine how our future existence is. When you die and you are fixated on a certain type of karma that you've done in the past, or because of karma you've done in the past, you your mind is twisted or straightened or pure or impure in a certain way, all because of your past karmas, past moments. In fact, every moment, this is why mindfulness is so important, because every moment you're potentially creating karma with greed, anger, delusion, or not mindful, or with clarity and mindfulness and wisdom if we are clear and mindful that's why meditation is so efficacious so powerful because of the effect that it has on your habits your, your habitual patterns of behavior the traditional explanation of karma is that there are 12 types and it's a very useful categorization. It's three sets of four. It really describes some, some of the very basic workings of karma. With, of course, the qualifier that you can't really understand. The, the, the problem with trying to understand karma is that, like any physics, any, any law of physics, it, it, confl it conflicts with each other. Right? It becomes complicated when mixed because how many karmas have we performed in our lifetime? And they're all interacting with each other and with all the many other forces in the world. Karma isn't the only force. There are many external forces as well. Other people's karma, someone might create their own karma to hurt you and you can't think that it's your bad karma that they did that. Your bad karma can certainly be a, a, a factor. Maybe they don't like you because of something you did in the past. But it's complicated. It's complicated, and yet we have a sense of how it works. And for our Buddhist practice, for our meditation practice, it's that sense that's important. Our sense of how the world works leads us in, in, a, in the direction of understanding the truth we start to see the way things work we see that everything we do has consequence we see some of the results of our karma we see very clearly through meditation we feel we remember things we've done in the past and feel good or bad about them we watch as we do things in the present and we see and taste their results firsthand And we understand the consequences of what we, we do now for the future, how they will affect our future, and how they might create great danger for us if they're headed in the wrong direction. Based on these 12 factors. So the first set, the first set is when, they, when the karma gives results. Some karma gives a result in this lifetime. 
So when we talk about karma, it's not always talking about future lives. Dita dhamma vedaniya kamma, the kamma that gives result in this life. This is a this is a pretty easy one to see. Anyone who talks about there being no evidence of the law of karma doesn't really understand what we mean by karma. If you're an angry sort of person, it's going to affect your relationships with others, your opportunities in life, the decisions you make. The most fundamental way that karma affects our life is in the decisions and the way that we uh, interact with our surroundings, every decision we make, every reaction to our situations, every every word we speak is influenced by our state of mind. So if you have an unwholesome state of mind, it's, it ruins every single thing, every moment of every minute of your day, every interaction you have with another person will be karmic change your life. Meditation has such a profound effect on our life because it strikes at the very heart of our interactions with our universe. Just talking, not even talking about enlightenment and, and nibbana, just talking about our the harmony in our life, the peace in our life has such an influence. Of course, we can't stop all the other factors. We're never going to have a perfectly peaceful life. We've already cultivated so much potentially negative karma along with any good karma we've performed that even though we might be a perfect person from here on out bad things can still happen to us of course but all of that putting all of that aside we have so much potential for happiness or suffering based on what we do right now we can change our lives depending on how we, we're always changing our lives, depending on how we interact, depending on our state of mind when we do and say things. When we've done and said bad things, we'll feel guilty in this life. When we've done and said good things, it can make you so happy, confident, reassured, content. Isn't it great when you can think of yourself as a person free from blame and how awful it is when you feel like you've done things that are blameworthy. The second is called Upapajavedaniya Kamma Kamma that has a result in the next life. So this is the various ways in which we're born on our deathbed no, it's, a, it's a very important moment it will affect your life future life things you do in this life especially at the moment that you're dying or especially as they influence the moment that you're dying the moment of death it will affect your next life people can be born with sickness for that reason you can be born rich or poor based on that sort of influence it's very complicated and it's not fair to say that a person's status in this life is completely dependent on their karma but it certainly plays a factor where we are born are we going to be born as a human an animal an angel a ghost a mara we were talking about this morning i hope none of us get born as a, as a mara in the future And third, uh, kama that has a result in some future life. Yes, the things we do now can potentially affect us in any lifetime. And you see this in some of the ancient stories of where they, where they were actually able to know what it was that they had done. Or the Buddha was able to point out what they had done. In the Jataka stories, you, you read about, oh, this is because in some long, far, far, Long, long ago life, this person did this. In, in the Chakupala story, the first verse of the Dhammapada, he was a doctor in a past life, and he, this woman wouldn't pay him and was lying about 
his treatment working. And so he gave her some medicine that made her blind. And as a result of that bad karma, he was he became blind in his in his final life as a monk. Or you have the story of Chulapantaka, who was a king in the past life, ancient times was a king, many, many lifetimes ago. And he was riding around the city and he, he, he was on his elephant riding around in the hot sun and he got sweaty and he pulled out a white, pure white cloth and rubbed his face with it, pulled it away and saw that it was kind of grimy. And that simple act was enough to uh, change his attitude towards life because he saw impermanence. It, it had a profound effect on him, even though he may not have known what, for what reason, but just the, the, the sullying of the cloth, realizing that nothing is permanent. And it stuck with him, this idea that everything is subject to subject to change. And so in his last life, he, because of whatever, for, for some very bad karma that he had done in another life, he was born unable to remember anything. In the past life, he had, he had insulted a, an enlightened being, I think, calling him a dullard. And so he was born a dullard, unable to remember anything. And the Buddha gave him a cloth and sent him out in the hot sun and told him to repeat a mantra, varajo haranang, taking out the taking out the dust. So he rubbed the cloth to take the dust out, take the, the, the dirt, the stain out of the cloth. And as he rubbed it, of course, in the hot sun, it started to get sullied. And it brought him back to that pure state of mind, the realization of impermanence, and he became an arahant just there. Mantras, they can be very powerful. And the final of the four is called Ahosikama. Kama that has already had its chance karma that that is defunct so some karma may never get the chance to give a result and and the importance of that is that it's not always the case it's not always the case that things we do are going to have this result or that result sometimes they just might not have a chance to give results The second set of four is regarding when the the order in which karma gives result. And this relates to at the moment of death. So when we die, or or even do, not when we die, but this specifically talking about when we pass away, there's an order in which karma takes precedence. When you die, the first, the first to give result, of course, is what we call garu karma, weighty karma. Certain, certain states of mind that you can't ever recover from. So, for example, the intentional killing of an enlightened being or the intentional killing of your father or your mother, very weighty kamma. Still focused on the intention. It has to be intentional, but enough intention that you actually 
followed through with the killing of your father or your mother or an enlightened being. Or if you cultivate jhana, if you cultivate samatha meditation, it's very weighty. If you die in one of the jhanas, then you're reborn as a brahma, as a god. But if you haven't done any weighty kamma when you when you die, then the next one is called bahula kamma or achinna kamma. And this is kamma that you've done quite often. If you habitually perform or, or engage in cultivating the same sorts of mind states, constantly angry and performing angry actions, you do the same thing over and over again, it's that sort of thing that's going to come back to you when you die and take over and, and determine your rebirth. If you're very angry, be born in hell. Very greedy, be born as a ghost. Very deluded, be born as a animal. If you keep the five precepts, Habitually be born as a human being. If you keep the eight precepts or do very wholesome things, be born as an angel. Habitual. Kama is built up. The more you do something, the more it becomes a part of your psyche. The third is asana kama. Kama that is performed when you die, states of mind that you cultivate when you die, if you become very agitated when you die, afraid, that can have a pro profound impact on your rebirth. If on the other hand, you cultivate mindfulness when you're passing away, it can be very powerful as well. This is why training in mindfulness can be a very useful skill for when you have to face the end of life. And finally, our rebirth can be determined actually simply by any karma that we've performed in, in our lives at random, meaning you can be a very good person, even up until the point the moment when you die, but suddenly you remember something that you did a long time ago that was maybe strong, maybe impactful. There was a strong karmic intention in the mind. And you can be born completely opposite to your your mental inclination at the, at the time before you were dying. You can be a very good person at the end of your life and be born in hell. You can be a very bad person and be born in heaven. It can happen. If there's nothing really weighty, really habitual to get in the way. This is something you, you can see the truth about through meditation practice, because as you meditate, you'll see random things arise in the mind, things you thought you'd forgotten about because of the, the quality of mind, the, the focus and the clarity. Many things are given the chance to come up during the time you're meditating, remember things and things you've done, things that happened to you, things that had a karmic impact, events that had a karmic impact. And so meditation helps to clear some of this, this garbage out of the mind, and purify the mind and sort these things out before you die. It's a very useful quality of meditation practice. But if it's not all cleared out when you die, that can come back to haunt you. The final set of karma is how karma interacts with other karma. As I said, it, karma affects other, other karma. 
So the first kind of karma is the one we think of. You do something, you you have a, a mental intention, and it gives a result. This is called janaka karma. It's productive. You have an angry intention, and you give rise to some action, some behavior, speech, or action, or even just mental states of anger, anger in your mind. That has an impact that can cause fruit can bear fruit in the form of your relationships changing your your own physical health your mental health but some karma is just supportive the effect of some karma is just to support other karma sometimes you might have done things to hurt others but they still forgive you but then you do some very small thing and it's just this, they say the, I don't want to say it, but it's the last straw. It's the last straw, it's just a small, small thing, but it pushes the person over the edge and they, they flip out and get very angry at you. And you wonder why, but oh, it's because they've been building it up because you've you've done other bad things towards them or good things. Sometimes a small good thing can be just the drop of water that causes the cup to overflow. The third is, that's called upatambaka kama. The third is upapilaka kama, which it detracts. Some karma makes other karma weaker. So if you're very you've done very bad things in the past and then you start to incline towards good things you're kind to others you're charitable you're mindful you're, you're content and so on you'll find that bad things still happen to you you'll still get the bad results people saying nasty things to you but it's weakened and the impact of it on you is weakened by the good things that you've done you're, you're shielded the force is called upakataka kamma. Upakataka kamma, kamma that destroys other kamma. It's like the equal and opposite reaction and cancels its other kamma out. And it's the same sort of idea that you can be shielded by change of, of behavior, change of habit, change of attitude, change of perspective gain a new perspective on things it's a common thing to see in meditation that you're freed from some of the potential pitfalls that you've set up for yourself in the future just by changing your behavior your whole psyche can change and your physical health can change your relationships change and you can free yourself from the result of many of the bad things you've done so karma isn't a simple thing and it isn't straightforward it's not something that is set in stone like a bank account or a law it's not like the legal system it's more like a law of nature it's a force of nature Maybe not even a law, it's a force of nature. That's a better way to put it. But it's also a law in that you can't get away with things and things don't happen randomly. That our mental states have a great impact and a great influence on our physical states, our surroundings and our future. So there you go some basic thoughts on karma let's move on to questions if there are questions about meditation practice or questions about karma maybe I'm ready to ask so we'd say we'd ask that now any conversation in chat should cease and all we put in chat now are more questions if there are any if you don't have any just sit back close your eyes and listen Okay, let's begin. How do you handle noting multiple feelings at once? 
If you just note one, you're ignoring the other. And when you do go back, uh, when do you go back to the rising, falling, noting? So there's no magic in noting everything. Relating back to the idea of karma, we're trying to cultivate, in one way of phrasing it, positive karma. We're trying to cultivate positive states of mind, useful, wholesome states of mind that are conducive towards enlightenment. And that comes from noting what's happening in the present moment. But it's not it's not a matter of noting every single thing. It's a matter of using the noting as a means of cultivating positive mind states. So when you say to yourself feeling, or if you feel angry, or if you feel desire, if you feel calm, or so on, any, any sort of feeling, when you say calm, calm, or angry, frustrated, wanting, etc., then you're cultivating positive states of mind. So it doesn't matter which one, which you'd pick is the most prevalent, the clearest, the most um, whatever one is the most clear, you would note that one. And once you've noted one thing, then usually try to go back to the rising and falling after you note that. Going back to the rising and falling is just a useful means of keeping you focused and keeping you objective so you don't pick and choose or you don't get obsessed with anything when we stop walking to note distractions should we close our eyes or keep them open either way if it's not really intense i would think you don't have to close your eyes but if something is intense and you think it helps you can close your eyes you shouldn't be focused on your eyes at all so what, so it should be more a matter of if my eyes close when i'm noting is that a problem well not really if my eyes are still open when i'm noting is that a problem no not really but intentionally closing them could be a useful tool but i wouldn't recommend it over the long term your mind shouldn't be with your eyes at all it should be with whatever's distracting it Why are the notes stopping and standing repeated three times? Because that's how I told you to do it. When pouring water in a cup, do I note pouring and observe the water flowing down, or do I note the tilting, gripping of my hand onto the bottle and observing the position and movement of the hand? It's a good question, and you're, you're starting to see the difference between concept and reality. So the reality is the experience of the gripping. Tilting is, you, you, you have to be able to understand the important distinction. And the important distinction is concept and reality. Tilting isn't really very close to the ultimate reality, not as much as gripping is, right? Gripping is what you feel. You, you think of it as tilting except that tilting is kind of related to the torque, right? The twisting of, of the wrist and so on. So you can note that, but your best is just to note feeling. Pouring is 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 helpful only because it's kind of a, a big note. It's noting the, the big picture. And that's useful, especially as a beginner, because noting everything can get quite intense. But as you get more skilled at it, you can try to note the, the, the feeling of bending and turning and so on note the movements of the body because that's what you feel so that's what you experience but when you observe the water flowing down that's not the pour pouring that's not the that's not the the action that's a vision that's what you're seeing so that should be noted as seeing my main issue right now in the practice, work, and home chores is the procrastination. From what I see, making resolutions helps, but it's still a hell. How could I face this situation? I don't, I don't think procrastination really is an issue. You have to delve deeper because procrastination is only a observation you observe that you're not doing certain things 
when, according to your perception, they should be done, right? You you give rise to the thought that something should be done now, but it fails to occur. So there's expectation, and it can often be a result of expectations. I mean, improper expectations, that's also possible. But either way, it is an expectation. And when things don't happen according to your expectations, you get frustrated, you feel bad, you feel guilty even, if you feel like you should have done them at that time. So what I mean to say is, this is what you should be noting, the expectations, the guilt, but but also, of course, the reason why the action doesn't occur. And that's often a greed. If you're, you're greedy, you, you, you do something else, you want to do something else. So you're not procrastinating. The greed is just getting in the way of doing certain things because you're greedy about doing other things. You want to go watch television or, or, or play games or whatever. And it can be anger. You don't like the idea of doing that thing. You have to do the dishes and you think, oh, how awful it is to do the dishes or laundry or cleaning or work. You have work to do and you've just built up. Quite often we've built up such aversion to things. Mindfulness is so helpful for this. If you want to talk about the relationship between mindfulness and daily and and worldly life, there's such a such a deep relationship there. You become so efficient, able to do so much work without any complaint, because you work through these these habits, these built up irrational aversion to things. We have aversion to doing dishes or cleaning or laundry. It build, builds up sometimes when you have to do your kids' laundry or you have to do your husband or your, you know, your wife or to do someone else's laundry, your parents' laundry. Clean up after other people. You can build up resentment and you build that up and build that up and build that up. I don't deserve to be treated like this and so on. And I, I'm not saying that you do deserve to be treated like that, but it's not, a, it's not helpful. And it, it only it's, it's the biggest part of the problem. You could be a slave and, and work for people, do, do all sorts of things for people who don't deserve your help and be completely content. I mean, for that matter, you could be hurt by others. People could hurt you and you could still be at peace. Meaning our, our actions, the things we do in the world are not the problem. So a huge part of why we fail to accomplish our goals or why we suffer from the work that we have to do and why we're inefficient at doing the work that we do is, is simply because of our attitude towards it and if we freed ourselves from that we wouldn't care so much about the work we have to do if we work in a low-paying job so many so many work so much work these days is underpaid and we can resent that and of course it's true you, you don't deserve you deserve to be treated better for certainly as human beings we deserve to be treated well by our fellow human beings but but the truth is the truth is our, our karma dictates very much our circumstance and a big part of the teaching on karma is to help us just let go of it to not be obsessed with good or bad results from karma understanding that a lot of our situation is already set in stone and be resigned to the fact that I may never be rich, I may never be famous, I may never be healthy, well, someone who has a chronic illness. And let that go and and focus on what's truly important and what's truly um, under your influence, that what you can affect, and that's your state of mind towards it. So that, that's a getting a bit far afield, but, but basically this is the huge part of why people procrastinate. Procrastination isn't a real thing. There's just lots of things that get in the way of you doing what you think you should be doing. And then there's, of course, the issue of putting too much uh, burden on yourself, too much expectation on yourself when it's unrealistic sometimes. And all of that you can start to see through meditation. How do I counter the restlessness that comes with impatience and awareness of time 
during meditation, and that prevents me from sitting for longer periods of time. We don't quite counter things. We just focus on them. See, a part of the problem is going to be your desire to counter, thinking that you're somehow in control of it. But that's not how it works. Restlessness is a habit that you've built up. It's karma, right? Bad karma from the past that leads to the restlessness. And so there's no cure for it. There's only the understanding of it, the clarity of mind that changes that habit as you start to see more clearly the things that make you restless and see the restlessness more clearly so as to not encourage it and cultivate it. So we just try to say to ourselves, restless, restless. And you see, the thing about saying to yourself, restless, is it's patience. That's a patient attitude. You're patient with the impatience, not trying to make it go away, not trying to fix it. Just acknowledging that you're impatient at this moment. And as you do that, of course, patience becomes your new habit. And the desire to sit longer can be a part of the problem because you think you should be sitting a certain amount of time and you're thinking about the time. It's a challenge of using a clock. It's a useful challenge. And a useful challenge is to eventually be able to set the timer and not be concerned about how much time is left. Right? Because a, a big, an important object of meditation is this obsession with time, the obsession with the timer when you meditate. There's nothing else to obsess over, so the mind fixates on how many minutes are left, how many minutes are left. And that's an important object of meditation. That's how you have to perceive that. See it as an object of meditation. Not a hindrance. I mean, not it, it's not something that's getting in the way of your meditation. It's something you should meditate on. While meditating, I start to see reality as compartmentalized. What state of insight would this be? How do I move forward past this stage? Mm. It's not a stage of insight. That's just a, a vision. That's a perspective. When you see it like that, you can say seeing, though you're not actually seeing. Knowing maybe is a better way to put it. Thinking maybe. When you wonder if it's a state, what stage of insight is you... You should say wondering and should not be so sure that it's a stage of insight. It's just a perspective, perception. How can we see pain and thoughts clearly? For example, when noting pain, the mind instantly jumps to aversion. How does seeing something clearly help to overcome it? Well, you don't overcome pain and thoughts, you see. So I'm not sure what you're expecting to overcome here. When you see that the mind jumps to aversion, you should note aversion or disliking or so on. So if you're talking about overcoming the aversion, it's not exactly, a, it's not a perfect description to say that we practice to overcome it. We practice to see it clearly. That's that's the practice. See, the reason why you dislike things is through a lack of clarity of vision. If you saw pain clearly, or if you just saw clearly, and therefore when the pain arose, you saw it clearly, if you had clarity of mind that allowed you to see the pain clearly, then you wouldn't give rise to aversion. That's how it is not overcome. It's, it's avoided. It's avoided through the lack of the cause the cause being the, the, the delusion, you know, the ignorance, the darkness of mind. We build up our bad habits simply out of delusion, out of the idea that there's some benefit to getting angry about things, that something's wrong, this is wrong, so I should dislike it. And that's just view, that's just opinion. There's nothing wrong with anything. And then it becomes habitual as you build it up, and then you've got no control over it. So the antidote is to avoid it, to, to 
pre prevent its arising through the change of, of mind, the clarity of mind, when you're able to see pain just as pain. Well, that just takes training. Why must I note when I go into deep, joyful meditation? Well, I mean, we should just ask, why must you note? Because it doesn't matter whether you have deep, joyful meditation or you have shallow, painful meditation. Why must you note? To cultivate clarity of mind. To cultivate clarity of mind about the nature of reality and... I guess the implication or the implied um, premise in your question is that deep and joyful meditation is is already the path when it isn't. Deep joyful meditation isn't the path. I mean, it can be conducive towards practicing mindfulness, but it itself doesn't lead to enlightenment. So why must you note in order to see things clearly, in order to free yourself from suffering? Being in deep joyful meditation won't do that it doesn't give rise to wisdom not directly noting on the other hand has that power is it right view that nothing happened to me in the past nothing is about to happen to me in the future only this is currently happening no Right view is this is suffering, this is the cause of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. While doing walking practice, I notice when I note distracted, distracted, there is judgment too that I'm always distracted. Any advice? Well, you can say judging or even just thinking, but if you don't like the fact that you're always distracted, that might be a part. You can say disliking as well. Sometimes my inhales and exhales are prominent, so I note and observe it rather than the rising or falling. Is that proper? I remember something about how the breath is just a concept and isn't real. So what is real is the feelings. There's no inhales or exhale. There's just there's just feelings in the body. So breath, that part of breath is real. That's fine. It's if you if you say in out or so on, it's it's getting conceptual and it does lead more often to tranquility than insight. Um, so if you know if you feel the inhales and if you have a feeling of breath, the coolness or the heat or the tension somewhere else, you can note that. But you should just note it as tense or feeling hot or cold, and then go back to the stomach as normal. See, the stomach isn't the only object of meditation. You could have a completely different practice, but it's such a good object because it challenges you, because it's inconsistent. It's just going to do a lot to, to open up your mind and make you flexible in ways that it's hard to find another object to do that. It's a challenge and it's uncomfortable, and that's what makes it such a good object. How do I know when I should adjust my leg position? Should I at all if I am diligently noting the numb leg, even though it interrupts the rising and falling sequence? Yeah, you don't have to note the numb leg forever. You can just ignore it after a while unless your mind goes out to it. But you don't need to adjust either. Numb leg is it's a common thing. Just be careful when you stand up so you don't break your leg or something. Since Buddha recommended seclusion for intensive practice, is it correct to conclude worldly dealings with people are bad for practice? Yeah, I mean, practically speaking, of course, worldly dealings are going to involve a lot of corruption, a lot of defilement, a lot of bad karma. I mean, technic so technically, no, but, but practically, of course, you really should seclude yourself if you want to. If you want to take things down to the experiential level, 
it's not very easy to train when you're surrounded by other people. Think of it like a lab. If you want to do a lab experiment, you go into, you want to do an experiment, you go into a lab. It helps isolate things. You get much better results. If in daily life, we note starting with our posture in order to calm ourselves, does it follow to say that we should ground ourselves in formal meditation if we find that we are very lacking in calm? We don't note starting with our posture in order to calm ourselves. We're not trying to calm ourselves. We're trying to see clearly. So that goes for formal meditation doubly so. You should not be trying to calm yourself. If you do, you should note wanting or trying or something like that. Usually wanting if you want to be calm. you find you're lacking in calm you should know not that you're lacking in calm but maybe that you want to be calm or, or maybe that you're restless note what is there if i note for example calm calm the calmness soon goes away and i am left with the mantra only does this sound correct or does it sound like i am giving the mantra too much prominence well, to be clear, once the calm is gone, you shouldn't keep saying calm, calm, right? So you won't be left with the mantra. Just stop saying it when the calm has gone. I mean, that's great. You're starting to see that everything goes away and nothing is going to last forever. And your mind gets that understanding deeply. So it stops clinging to things, to good things, but clinging also to bad things. When it lives anisito, which is independent. When I meditate, sometimes my mind is cleared of all thoughts and feelings for a very short period of time. Is this a good thing or just another mind trick? You could say it's a good thing. It's a good sign. I mean, it, it, it is certainly a pleasant thing, right? But it's important that you don't cling to good things because the, the description of something as being good is pretty relative. You know, it's, it, it is, it, it's good primarily because it's a result of good things right what's really good is mindfulness but when you're mindful lots of quote-unquote good things come from it and they're actually not good in themselves because they don't lead to further good things happiness doesn't lead to happiness calm doesn't lead to calm you see but wholesomeness leads to both happiness and calm so it's the wholesomeness the, the clarity of mind the, the practice the mindfulness that we should be focused on that's the problem with focusing on results you get lost in them and then you forget to continue the practice so you can see it as a good sign that can be useful but don't let it dis distract you from what's important i mean most importantly when you do feel that you have to note it as well or else you will get sidetracked so if you feel quiet, you can say quiet, quiet, calm, calm. If you like it, say liking. I've noticed that if I use noting meditation only, my mood is lower during the day than if I add a metta meditation. What is the impact of practicing both in the longer term? Well, you see, metta is something that makes you feel good. So there you can see that. That's not a bad thing. That's useful. It'd be a problem if you got um, addicted to it, like like reliant on it, and started to use it in favor of or, or to favor it over mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice actually makes you feel horrible sometimes, because you have to face all the things you don't want to face, and that's important. It's in, it's of course important to face those things, but it's of course potentially unpleasant. And you have to be prepared for that. That's There's nothing more important than that, facing the nature of your mind. There's nothing about noting that is inherently unpleasant or should be inherently unpleasant. But because it, fo it forces us to face our minds, well, guess what? Our minds are not inherently pleasant all the time. And reality in general is not inherently pleasant all the time. So that's important. It's an important part of it.
to be able to face what is unpleasant without reaction. And metta won't do that for you. So metta can be helpful mostly for that reason, because it makes you feel good, so it makes <laughs> makes facing reality more bearable. But it can also be useful if you have strong states of anger towards others. That's when it's really most useful. Bhante, we've crossed the hour. There are four more questions in Tier 1. All right, let's cut it at four then. Thank you all. Four more questions. How can we understand what you're saying while also being mindful of hearing, sitting, etc.? Well, through training, you get you get better at it. You know, you're able to talk even and be mindful. Because as the mo at the moment when you're talking, it's only physical at that point. So you can just start saying to yourself, feeling when you feel your lips moving or so on. But it's not really important that you understand everything that I'm saying. You know, often the the concern in your mind that you you want to or the, the worry that you're being mindfulness is going to get in the way of you understanding sometimes that gets in the way of understanding so don't worry about it you don't actually have to understand everything that i say if you say to yourself hearing hearing it's much more valuable but what's going to happen is your mind will go back and forth and even without trying to note things or more more when you don't try to do any mindfulness practice during the time you're listening, your mind will still get lost, get distracted. You're not going to be focused on everything I say anyway. The mind is is unpredictable, so don't worry about that. Certainly pick up the practice of mindfulness even when, when listening to the Dhamma. You might, you might not want to go too intense, especially into, before you're skilled at it, but for sure note, don't forget to note just because you're listening to a talk. Otherwise, the whole talk is useless because you weren't actually practicing it. Well, it's it's much less useful. When walking in a place, for example, the supermarket, other than noting walking, how do we note what is actually leading us there? Is it the intention or wanting or what? We don't note what leads us to things. I mean, I'm not sure where you're, it sounds like you're curious, you're wondering what it is that leads you to go to the supermarket or something. We're only interested in what's happening here and now. So when you want to go to the supermarket, then you have a note wanting. But when you're walking, we're not concerned with what led us to walk. We're just concerned with the walking. How should I note involuntary movements like twitching? Is it enough to note them after they happen, or should they be ignored because there was no intent behind them? You note them after they happen. You can also, if it's if it's you're more focused on the fact that you knew that that happened or you're aware that it happened, you can say aware or how you reacted to it or that sort of thing. Note that. I have practiced meditation for one and a half years. I still get very stressed in regard to my job. The difference is now that I know that I'm stressed. How can I go the next step and reduce the feeling of overwhelming stress? So don't focus on that. Don't worry about that. You see, because, that, well, that'll make you more stressed if you worry, but, but that, that don't focus on reducing the stress ever. Do exactly what you're doing. Knowing that you're stressed is great. Why is it great? It's great because that changes your psyche. Seeing the stress, right? The first noble truth is suffering, seeing suffering. And that works because our desire is for those things that cause us suffering. We actually have desire for them. We actually intentionally put ourselves in a position of suffering. We think, yes, I'll do this, this thing that's making me suffer. I mean, we don't we don't verbalize it or... or conceive of it as a thought but that's this the the order of events and that will only change when we see excruciatingly clearly that that's not a good thing that this isn't it isn't the case that doing this will be good for me that only comes by seeing again and again and again and realizing that there is no benefit to getting stressed out why do you get stressed out because you think or you don't think your mind is of the habit. It's of the inclination, the belief 
the inherent deep belief that that's the way to do work, right? It's just a habit. Watch yourself perform that habit again and again and again. Watch how much suffering it's causing you. Watch how stressful it is. Just keep watching. Keep watching until your mind real. oh, wait. Your mind says, oh, wait. This isn't actually good for me. That's where when change occurs. So there's no next step. There's only the first step again and again and again with patience. That really deeply changes you because it's a, you see it's so different from how we think about solving problems. And that's the point. If the way we thought about solving problems was the right way, we would have solved them by now. But it's wrong. It's not right. Solving problems is not the answer. Fixing things, changing things, not the answer. Seeing them clearly cuts deeper than that. It, it, it changes everything. Those were the four questions, Bhante. Thank you for taking the extra time. Oh, I, I spoke a lot in the beginning, so I'm happy to go over. Thank you all, Sadhu. Good group. I appreciate all your questions, all your patience and interest in the Dhamma. It's great to see people coming out to these sessions. And I didn't, I didn't talk about our meditation course even once. So if there's anyone out there who wants to take a meditation course, please consider to sign up. We have an at-home meditation course you can sign up for, or if you're just interested in what we teach, you can read our meditation book. Everything we do is free. So this isn't me plugging something that's going to give me any benefit. It's just another service, another thing we offer because we want good karma as well. We want to cultivate wholesomeness and goodness as a part of our lives as well. So thank you all for coming out. Sadhu. And thank Sadhu. you, Chris and Ulu and Jim, for your help. Have a good week, everyone.